growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Because of this promise Isaiah gave 700 years before that event took place, you and I have the opportunity to have peace with God. Peace. It sounds nice, doesn't it? We live in a world that is anything but peaceful. Even our personal lives, it seems, are often filled with strife and stress, and peace seems more like a pipe dream than a reality. So is peace in our lives even possible? You can purchase happiness, you can purchase thrills or fun, or you can try and do something, but you will never have actual peace in your life without a relationship with God. And you can't have a relationship with God unless you've acknowledged your own sinfulness and your need for a relationship. You have to meet Him at the cross. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. We're continuing today our Christmas series entitled Birth Announcements. It's a series that takes a look at some of the announcements of the coming of Jesus and what He would bring with Him. Last week, Pastor Clay took us to the first birth announcement that God gave us found in Genesis chapter 3 and the promise to Adam and Eve that God would one day send the one who would crush the head of Satan and bring hope to what seemed like a hopeless situation. Our lives can feel hopeless at times, but as we saw in that first birth announcement, God wants to bring hope to all of us. Another important need in our lives is for peace, and Pastor Clay is taking us today to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, to show us God's birth announcement of peace and what it means for our lives today. You know, it's hard to put a price tag on the value of having peace in our lives, but as we'll discover today, God's idea of peace is much more than the absence of conflict in our lives. Now here's Pastor Pastor Clay with the announcement of peace. We're in a series called Birth Announcements. We're looking at birth announcements in the Bible connected to the birth of Jesus Christ. Today, there is the announcement of peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom. For her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, The light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult And cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I want to talk to you in the time that I have, and I need you to listen really fast, because I'm probably going to talk pretty fast at points about this announcement of peace. There are three ideas about this announcement that I need to, to share with you this morning and then some stuff within those three announcements. Let me just kind of dive into this right away. And, and if you take notes, if you like taking notes, on the back of your information sheet is an outline. The announcement of peace was a much-needed peace. This announcement of peace that Isaiah brings was a much-needed peace. Prophets prophesy. That's what they do. That's their job. They prophesy. Now, there are two aspects of prophecy, okay? There is what is known as, as forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H, forth-telling. Forth-telling is when you proclaim something that God has already announced. God has already said. God has already put in His Word. For instance, when I stand up here and I proclaim to you the, the Word of God, even what I'll be doing today, I am forth-telling. When you share with someone your own personal testimony and how God has worked in your life and, and you talk with them about how you recognize that, that you were a sinner separated from God and you needed this relationship with God and that, and that you found out that, that God sent His Son to, to, to pay for your sins so that you could have a relationship. When you tell a person that, you are forth-telling. You're proclaiming what God has said. In that sense, you and I are prophets. We are prophesying. It is forth-telling. The other aspect of prophesying is foretelling, F-O-R-E, telling. Foretelling is to proclaim something before that something takes place. It is to receive a word from God and to announce that word before it happens. It is thus, it's saying, thus says the Lord before that event actually transpires. That is foretelling. Isaiah was a prophet in both senses of the word. He was a foreteller, proclaiming to the nation of Israel what the issues were and, and to the people of God, and he was a foreteller, pronouncing to them what God had given to him about events that would transpire in the future. In Isaiah chapter 9, he is a foreteller. He is telling the people of God what's going to happen. Now, to best understand the context of Isaiah chapter 9, we need to know a little bit about what Isaiah said before that. You see, prior to that, Isaiah has, has basically been forthtelling. He's been announcing to the people of God that they're, that they're, that they're getting in trouble with God because they're, they're kind of turning away from Him. And that they need to turn back to God. And so you find places in the book of Isaiah with these passionate pleas. For instance, this one in Isaiah chapter 1, you find this passionate plea. Come now. and Listen, you can, just, you can hear the passion in these words. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And not just Isaiah's passion, but hear God's passion in this statement. God says to the people, come on, let's, let's think about this together. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
I just think those are some of the most awesome words that, that you can find in all of the Word of God. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. I don't know about you, but that is, that is great news to me. That was really great news the first time I heard it, knowing my life and what my life was like before I came to Christ. Unfortunately, God's warning went unheeded. The people of God didn't really listen to the prophet of God. And so the message changes from a warning about coming judgment to the certainty of a pending judgment, a judgment that is coming. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 8. So why are you trying to find out the future by consulting mediums and psychics? Do not listen to their whisperings and mutterings. Can the living find out the future from the dead? I don't know what that does for Madame Zelda's business. That's what God says. Can the living find out the future from the dead? Watch this. Why not ask your God? There's a novel idea. Check their predictions against my testimony, says the Lord. If their predictions are different from mine, it's because there's no light or truth in them. My people will be led away as captives. Here it is. Weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and shake their fists at heaven and curse their king and their God. Wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish. Watch this. And dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. Notice the metaphor of darkness that's used. Now, let's read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 again in the context of what Isaiah just announced in chapter 8. That that darkness is coming, that ruin is coming, that judgment is coming. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 in the New Living Translation. Nevertheless, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will soon be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in, there it is, darkness, will see a great light. A light that will shine on all who live in the land where death casts its shadow. This was a desperately needed announcement of peace, ladies and gentlemen. Just like the just like Adam and Eve that we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 3 needed an announcement of hope for their lives, the people of God in this time needed an announcement that the darkness would eventually be abolished, that the light would come and that light would destroy the darkness and it would bring with it peace. They needed an announcement of peace. It was desperately needed. Now, there are two aspects of this desperately needed peace that I want you to understand. Very important that we understand. First, we need to understand that what they needed, what you and I need, is peace with God. First and foremost, it's peace with God. God's people had turned away from Him. They were going their own way. They were doing their own thing. God had warned them over and over and over again. And so God says, judgment's going to come, but listen to me, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you in this situation. I'm going to send one. They need a peace with God. Now, I know on the surface, for those people in that day, 
And, and even in our own lives. I know in their context, it probably looked like the approaching enemy, that the armies of the, of, of the enemy that were approaching, I'm sure that probably looked like the problem, but that really wasn't the problem. Their problem was with their God because they had turned away from God. And God said, if, if you follow me, you're, you're going to experience the best of the land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to watch over you. But if you turn and you go your own way, man, you're going to have trouble because you're mine. You've, you've, you've chosen to enter in this relationship with me. They need at peace with God, first and foremost, in their lives. Besides peace with God, or in addition to peace with God, they need the peace from God. Now listen, the, the, the people of God, here's what they wanted, right? They wanted peace from God. They wanted God to bring peace and they define that. Now listen to me, this is very important for our lives. And I'll say more about it in a minute if I remember. But this is very important for our lives. They want it what we often want. They want it peace from God by the removal of circumstances in their life. Sound familiar? God, take this away. God, get rid of this. God, take this off of me. And then I'll be at peace. Then everything will be good. They want it peace from God by the removal of their circumstances, but what they needed was peace with God by the removal of their sin. They were living in sin. They needed to repent of that sin and turn away from that sin and turn back to God. And then would come peace from God. And it was very important that the, the people of God understood where their peace would come from. Now, let me give you a little historical background. Try not to get too bored or yawn too much, but I'll try and make this as simplified and do it as quickly as I can. In those days... Uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, had had a civil war, like we experienced in, in the 19th century, but they split. They didn't, they didn't come together at that point. They split apart. Israel split apart. The ten, ten tribes formed a nation that, that came to be known as Israel, or sometimes it was called Ephraim, because that was the predominant tribe of those ten tribes. The other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, uh, became known as Judah, the southern tribes. You got me? You with me? Ten tribes became known as Israel. Two other tribes became known as Judah. That's what's going on at this place. Isaiah is prophesying to Judah. Because here's what's happened. Israel, northern ten tribes, have teamed up with Aram or Syria. They've teamed up with them to partner together because this other great nation, Assyria is looking in their direction, is casting their gaze upon them. And they're a little nervous about that. And so they team up together and they say to Judah, you got to team up with us too. you got to become a part of this. you got to join our coalition. And God had said to Judah and to their king, Ahaz, no, trust me, you don't need a coalition with them. Now Ahaz was not a good king. He was a wicked king for the most part. But he had not joined forces with with those two nations. With me? Thank you. <laughs> Paris is with me. Y'all, the rest of y'all with me? All right. So, they, they, won't, he won't, they won't join with it. And so, Syria, Aram, and Israel, northern ten tribes, say, all right, we're going down. We're going to take you out, Judah. We're just going to force you to become part of us. Ahaz, when he hears word of that, gets nervous. 
He says, oh my goodness, they're going to come. They're three days march from me. They can be here before I even know what's happening. They'll take over my country. What in the world am I going to do? And God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, hold on now. What did I tell you? Wait for me. Don't worry about them. They're, they're, not, they're not even a blip on the radar. They're not even going to be in existence in a little while. You trust me. Ahaz doesn't do it. Ahaz goes to, of all places, are you ready for this? He goes to talk to the Assyrians, the big boys. He says, man, I, I wish y'all sure would protect us. God says, Ahaz, comes from me. You want peace in your life? You want peace in your land? You got to understand it comes from me. And so in verse 4, he says this. For you shall break the yoke. It's talking about, notice the capital Y, referring to divinity, referring to God. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now, Isaiah makes reference to the battle of Midian, referring to the battle between Gideon and his army and the Midianites. If you're not familiar with that story, Gideon had gathered together about 32,000 soldiers for a battle with the Midianites. He, they was already drastically uh, outmanned. But he got 32,000 together. And God meets with Gideon. He says, Gideon, you got way too many people. And I'm sure it's not in the Bible, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Gideon said something like, say what? <laughs> got way too many people. And God begins to work. And by the time God gets done, he, 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 he reduces Gideon's army all the way down to how many? 300. 300 men against a lot. <laughs> a lot of the, of the Midianites. If you're familiar with the story, and if you're not, go back and read it, but, it, but God brings this tremendous victory. And that's the point. God brings this tremendous victory so that Gideon and his 300 men and the people of Israel and anybody else that would read that story from that day to today would look at that story and say, only God could do that. That's where God wants his people, ladies and gentlemen. That's where he wanted them in Isaiah chapter 9, and that's where he wants you and me. He wants us to rest in him and to be able to say, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care whether we're outnumbered. I don't care about the circumstances or all that. I know that my God is on his throne, and he'll bring peace. He'll bring to pass. I will trust him. They needed peace with God, and they need, it, need it peace from God. I said a moment ago, and I've got to go move on real quickly. I said a moment ago that the Israelites, or the, actually it was Judah, he's prophesying to, but the people of God wanted peace from God by the removal of their circumstances when what they actually needed was peace with God by the removal of their sin. So I want to ask you this morning, 2011, almost 2012, no, not, no, nobody's got to look around. Nobody's got to want. But to ask yourself this question. Do I have peace with God? Have I surrendered everything to Him? Is there anything in my life that I'm withholding from God? Now, just think about that. Do I have peace with God? What does that look like? Peace with God looks like a person who has entered into a relationship with God by recognizing their own sinfulness and realizing by faith that Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross 2,000 years ago was the only means of me having a right relationship with God. And without a right relationship with God, ladies and gentlemen, you can't have peace in you. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, without a relationship with God, you can't have peace in your life. You can, you can purchase happiness, you can, 
You can purchase thrills or fun, or you can try and do something, but you will never have actual peace in your life without a relationship with God. And you can't have a relationship with God unless you've acknowledged your own sinfulness and your need for a relationship. You have to meet Him at the cross. You've got to meet Him at the cross. Plain and simple. Do you have peace with God? Have you surrendered everything in your life to God? Is there any part of your life you're still holding out? You've got to understand, God wants all of you. Okay, so there's the, the first idea. It was a desperately needed peace. Here's the second idea this morning. The announcement of peace was a divine delivered peace. Look at verse 6 again. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to think about what these words must have meant when Isaiah pronounces them 700 years before the coming of Christ. When the people of Israel or God's people, when they, when they heard this, this name, when they heard this announcement, they probably initially thought, okay, God's going to send some, some, some warrior like, like Gideon I mentioned a moment ago. Or he's going to send some warrior king like David. And God had used David in a great way to defeat the enemies. And so they're thinking, maybe it's, 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 he's, going to, he's going to send somebody like that. But this is where it gets interesting. As Isaiah doesn't stop just there with this announcement that this one was going to come, but he begins to give these names of him, this one who would come. And his name will be called Wonderful. I'm sorry, but I don't think that it is Wonderful Counselor. As if wonderful is an adjective of the kind of counselor that he is. Actually, in the Hebrew text, the original text, wonderful is a noun. And the child is the subject. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is that this child that's going to be coming is a, is a wonder. There's something different about this child. There's something amazing about this child. And I know I can't get into it too much, but if you go back to chapter 7 where God spoke to Ahaz and he said, Ahaz, ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign. Ask from the highest heaven to the depth. He said, ask anything you want. And Ahaz says, oh, no, I'm not going to ask. And God says, all right, well, I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. So here in chapter 9, he's saying there's something wonderful about this child. There's something different about this child. There's something miraculous about this child. It's wonderful. And he says he is counselor. Interestingly enough, counselor is in, the act, is in an active tense, which doesn't necessarily prove pre-existence, but it certainly leans that way, that this one who would come pre-exists, that he is counselor. Jesus uses this name of himself when he says in John 14, 16, that God the Father would send another counselor. So you've got wonderful and you've got counselor, and you might look at those, and you might, you might look at those two, and you might say, okay, well, there's some application that you could make and say that, that this could be some type of, of man who will come, some type of a human person actually who could handle all that. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. The last three leave no doubt. He says he is mighty God, he is eternal or everlasting father, and he is prince of peace. Now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. Okay, I, I, that sounds good, God. You're sending somebody and, and he's going to dispel the darkness and he's going to be a, a great light, a, a, a king, a warrior king, some type of warrior. I got that, but now wait a minute. He's going to be a helpless child, but he's also mighty God. A son is going to be given, but he's also eternal father. He's going to destroy the enemy, but he's the prince of peace. 
There's only one way, ladies and gentlemen. There's only one way that any of this can happen. And that's if God takes on flesh and becomes a man. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I do need to say this, in case someone should ever say something to you. The verbs that are used in verse 6 are actually in the past tense. A child has been born to us. A son has been given to us. But there's no person born up to that time who even remotely fit the description that Isaiah gives. So all Isaiah is doing is simply stating the fact that when God says something, it's a done deal. It may not have transpired yet, but in the mind of God, it's already done, which the Apostle Paul says the same thing. Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. So here comes this child who is all of these things. He's wonderful. He's counselor. He's mighty God. He's eternal father. He's prince of peace. Only God could do that, ladies and gentlemen. Only God could do that. Now, I don't know that they could get their minds around it. I don't know if they were ready to hear God's explanation for how this was going to happen. But God told them anyway. It's like his, uh, I heard a story about this, this uh, guy who's looking at his man who's looking at his kitchen window one day. And he saw a little neighbor boy, Timmy, uh, digging a hole in the ground. And so he was curious. He went out there and he said, Timmy, what are you doing? And Timmy was putting dirt back in the hole at this point. Timmy's kind of sniffling and crying. He says, my, my goldfish died. And, and the man felt bad for Timmy. And, but he couldn't help but notice that Timmy had, had dug a much larger hole than was necessary for a little goldfish. And so he said, well, Timmy, I'm sorry your goldfish died, but why did you dig such a big hole for such a little goldfish? And Timmy said, because your cat ate him. <laughs> I don't know if that guy was ready for that kind of news or not. But that's the news he got. I don't know if Israel was ready. I don't know if the nation of Israel, I don't know if the nation of Judah, I don't know if the people of God were ready to hear this or could get their minds around it or not. I don't know if we still today can get our minds around it. That this child will be born and he is mighty God. Um, One of the early church fathers, uh, one of the early church leaders, uh, Ephraim the Syrian said this, Today was born, speaking of that day, the birth of Christ. Today was born the child, and his name was called Wonderful. For a wonder it is that God should reveal himself as a baby. It is astounding. It's known as the incarnation of God taking on flesh. And it truly is a wonder. But it was a divine delivered peace. Why would God take on flesh? Listen, God could entrust angels with delivering a message to men, but he could not entrust them with redeeming men because our redemption required a perfect sacrifice and only God fits that bill, ladies and gentlemen. So angels couldn't do this. God had to do this himself, which means our sin is serious, that God would have to make such a sacrifice. The second thing it means is that his love is great. I've said this a couple of times this year in, in, in different messages or series we've been in, but it's just a great place to say it again because I know sometimes we get so beat up by life and the world and all that's going on and we just need to sometimes stop and even though it doesn't feel like it or you don't think it or or, or circumstances are telling you something else, do you know how much God loves you? Because I know your circumstances may feel like he doesn't, but all you have to do is look at the cross to know how much God loves you. And all you got to do is look all the way back to Isaiah where, where God gives this announcement way ahead of time. He says, the darkness is going to be dispersed. The light is going to come, which then is the last idea uh, to share with you. The announcement of peace is an eternal, lasting peace. Lasting peace. Say that with me. Lasting peace. 
Verse 7 says this, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah prophetically is looking to the millennial kingdom that we find in Revelation chapter 19 and 20, and then the eternity to follow in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. That this, that this one who would come, this light of the world, would eventually abolish all darkness. There's still darkness in this world right now. All you got to do is pick up a newspaper, watch the news, go outside, and see that there's still darkness in this world. But Isaiah looks forward to the day when all of that will be abolished And God will rule over his kingdom and over his people. And the light of the world will be among us. An eternal, lasting peace. Ladies and gentlemen, what an amazing, amazing concept. I love that phrase right there. From then on and forevermore. I love that phrase. Because it's like, boom, this is it. This is final. You can can just just pencil that one in. This is going to happen text says, and it's almost as if God is anticipating. Okay, but, but how, how can all this happen? Virgin, conceiving, rising from the dead. How does, how's all that going to happen? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now, certainly that, that term implies, what time is it? Oh, man, am I late. Certainly that term implies the power of God at work, and certainly it was. But let me, let me give you this, and then, then, I'll, then I'll wrap it up. That word that's translated zeal there in verse 7, the Hebrew word doesn't mean anything necessarily to us. Karath, I think, is the, is the word, appears 43 times in the Old Testament. Ten of those times, it's translated the way it is here, zeal. It's kind of a, maybe an old word, but most of us can grasp maybe what that means, zeal. The other 33 times that word appears in the Old Testament, you know what it's translated? Jealousy, envy. Ladies and gentlemen, God is jealous for you. All the way back to Genesis 3 that we looked at last week when Satan stole the relationship that we were were supposed to have with God and he broke that relationship. And God's zeal, his jealousy for you has been in its place ever since. His desire to bring you, draw you back to himself. Now, I'm not saying that God's jealousy is the same as our jealousy. Our jealousy is usually based on on what we need or what we want. And God's jealousy is based on what he wants to give to us. But the very idea that God would be jealous for me. Cindy and I started dating in high school. And um, she was uh, pretty serious about it from the beginning. And uh, somehow knew that, that I was the one that she was supposed to be with. Um, but I, I kind of had a hard time with commitment. I just, uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, what, play in the field, whatever, what do you even call it? I just had a hard time with commitment. Until one day, a guy with a brand new shiny red Corvette showed up in Cindy's driveway and wanted to begin date, dating her. And she began dating him. And I didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. I, I thought about you know, racing the guy, winner takes all, but uh, I drove a Honda Civic, so I was pretty sure that wasn't going to end well for me, and somehow in the process, I came to my senses, and I'm sure I went back begging and crawling and 
and, and, and she took me back. But it was my jealousy that drove me to action. God's jealousy for you and me, ladies and gentlemen, drove him all the way to the cross. Oh, how he loves you and me. Now, I know we're late. I know we're late. I apologize. We'll be done. But, but you got, I got to close with this. Because of what Christ did on the cross, because of this promise Isaiah gave 700 years before that event took place, you and I have the opportunity to have peace with God. That peace, as I said, comes when we acknowledge our sinfulness and we draw near to God and His finished work on the cross and we believe by faith that His substitutionary death paid for my sins and that He rose from the dead and that someday He's coming back to establish His kingdom. By His very zeal, He'll accomplish this. I hope that you have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, you can have peace with God today. His invitation is still there. It's still out there for any person that would acknowledge and come to him. But let me say this. For those of us who say, I have peace with God. My life's not always easy and I have messes and sometimes I'm not walking real well with God. And I know I need to work on that stuff and everything. But but I know I have have peace with God. I'm not sure I always have peace from God, but I know I have peace with God. But... Isaiah's birth announcement of peace should also do something else in our lives. It should take peace from us. Because it is hard for me to have peace in my life if I know that there are people somewhere in the world that do not have peace with God and have never heard that they can have peace with God. And I have the ability to do something about it. Maybe it's a cup of coffee. Maybe it's a Christmas present. Whatever it is, I can make a sacrifice to make it possible that others can have peace with God. What a beautiful passage of Scripture, and what a beautiful promise of the coming Prince of Peace. Of course, Isaiah penned those words 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The people of Isaiah's day were walking in dark times, but God reminded them through his prophet that a great light was coming. Today, you and I look back almost 2,000 years to the time when Jesus came. His birth, and ultimately his death and resurrection, brought peace to us. As Pastor Clay reminded us, today, however, there are still billions on the earth that walk in darkness. Followers of Jesus have the responsibility to make sure that they have an opportunity to have God's peace as well. What about you? Do you have peace with God? If not, why not? Do you have the peace of God? If not, what have you not surrendered? And are you willing to take the message of God's peace to the world? We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross.
Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.